Here we go on a Monday night, just past 7 o'clock, and we are so excited. It's time for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and Ira, here we go. The final four is set. You're in studio, and we're pretty excited. Yeah, I rushed back from San Francisco. I mean, it's amazing. Just like yesterday morning, I'm on a plane, flying. You know, it was tremendous to go out there. I haven't been... I was there for Oracle when the Golden State Warriors were in the NBA Finals. So this was different. This is the first... NCAA games that been in San Francisco since 1939 because the games were either at San Jose mm-hmm. or in Golden State at Oracle, which is in Oakland. So it was fun. And I got to go see the city. Um, there's nothing happening in San Francisco. The traffic <laughs> outside here in West Palm Beach is far greater than the traffic in San Francisco. There's it's, the town is empty, really. Inside. It kind of worked out for you then, probably getting around with Ubers and whatnot. It was it was great. And considering I flew out and I landed in San Francisco at three at two and a half hours before the first game, and I was nervous that I was going to make it in time, but it was like a few minutes from the Uber from the Super Airport to the hotel. Then I was lucky to pick up a ticket and then I get there and I'm, I'm an, hour, an hour and a half before game time. So it's perfect. So we're going to talk about that, of course. We're also, you know, we always talk about how the NFL manages to stay in the headlines, Ira. It's the offseason. And the Miami Dolphins may have made the biggest move that they've made in my lifetime. And we're going to talk all about it with Justin Heyer later. Yeah, excited about that, about the Tyreek Hill signing. I just, when it happened, I'm like, it's one of those things where you hear and you're like, you don't believe it. I didn't believe it. No, there was no talk. I mean, there's so much. We talked about Deshaun Watson forever. No one's talking about, oh, when the Kansas Chiefs trade Tyreek Hill. (laughs) It never would, it would never, you you don't believe it's a true story. That's what crazy is. And that'll happen at 7.30. Uh, Justin Heyer from the Finsider joins us to talk all about that. It's been a pretty crazy uh, couple of days here. So let's go back to San Francisco. Ira. I want to talk a little bit more about your experience there because this was somewhere you've never been before. So tell us about everything. Well, first of all, I have a, I'm going to give a, a hint to travelers. The Fort Lauderdale uh, valet service is the way to go. The park, it is so great. terrible there. To go, there, there's no parking. To go, I, I went in, I couldn't find a parking space, I went out, and I've done this before, but you just park at Valet, they take it, it's $25, whereas it's $35 if you park your car, yeah. and then you just, when you land your plane, you text them, and then the car's outside for you. It is the crazy, I hate telling people because then the people are gonna <laughs> use it, but I think it's the greatest service in the world. That's good, and the other thing is having flown around these airports, if you think you're gonna get food in an airport, you're wrong, because there's, none of the, nothing Fort is Lauderdale open. Fort has the worst amenities of any major airport. But nothing is open, and then the, but the Starbucks line is the longest line. Like, it is longer than the people getting into Chase Center. Like, I've never seen the line for any Starbucks anywhere in the both Fort Lauderdale, in Greenville, anywhere. The lines are just amazing. But those are from those from the airport aspect. But it was fun. When you fly JetBlue, you can watch TV. So I'm flying over there. But I was nervous. Like, when I land to the airport, like, am I going to get the ticket? What's going to happen? And I'll tell you what. I went to the hotel, and I'll go on Ticketmaster, and there was this ticket in the section. It was, like, maybe, uh, I guess, 20 rows up. 15, about 15 rows up uh, right from the foul line. I bought it immediately because when you're sort of understanding where the market is, you know when you see a good one and I you bought know. it. <laughs> you just got to move. You just got to go. And then I took it and I went to the game and it was so funny. When I pull up at the Chase Center in the Uber, it, this is really funny. I, like, I've been to every state. It was like, I get out, and I'm like, I had to ask the security, this is where they're playing basketball. <laughs> because the building on the one side looks like on TV. Like, it's the most amazing spaceship in the world. Like, whatever. On the other side, it's like you're going into, I don't even mm. know a lot of people. Like, it doesn't look, I, like, what is this? Like, we go to a concert, like a play. Like, I, it just, <laughs> it was crazy on the side of the building, on the one side. It, it was nuts to go in. And it's 
Chase Center is beautiful. They have so many different lounges, amenities, this, that. Um, outside, they have um, a store. Their store, the Oracle, compared to Oracle, where the Golden State Warriors used to play, which was the biggest dump in the world. They were trying to move <laughs> 20 years before. and But nothing has been developed around the Chase Center. There's nothing around except there's two two bars. That's it. Two bars around. Nothing else is developed because it, during COVID. And so when you go in, there's these lounges and this lounges and that lounges. And the VIP is beyond VIP. The seats you see at the Dolphin Stadium that are on the 50, that's how they have the one side. So there's like maybe 200 seats on one side of the stadium. There are these plush, like you like lounge chairs mm -hmm. almost for like four levels on one side. And then like for four or five rows. And then there's, a, they all call like, you know, courtside. And then there's this glass making sure nobody would go down. They kept those, everyone out. People, you know, <laughs> like you think you're VIP. But I do like the fact that even the seats that I sat in, which is above that, you had your own, you had a club below, you had a club above. But the weird thing is, my friend said, I'll meet you at Budweiser Lounge, and he had tickets in the upper deck. And you find this in some of these stadiums, these little mistakes, I think, what they, how they make. The Budweiser Lounge has these bar stools and tables right right, right between the courts and everything. If you get there early, you don't have to leave. And no mm -hmm. one stands in front of you. So you're really like 30 rows up in a bar stool, sitting there with food, and the restrooms are right there. And you could have the cheapest ticket and sit right there. That was pretty cool. So for the next game on Saturday, I rushed in and got my friends. I had a, a better ticket, but for my friends, I got them. There's, I had to hold, you know, that that seat. But I was real. I think the stadium is beautiful. They have what I like about it is they don't have a lot of upper level seats, which I has I think a problem with a lot. Like we're going to the Superdome, mm -hmm. has, it's like all upper level tickets. And if anyone's been to the Heat or Miami American Airlines or whatever FTX Arena, they still have a lot of upper deck seats. So it's their lower bowl is a true lower bowl, and I like that it's a bowl. It's not pushed back like it. Uh, at the uh, at the Madison Square Garden, uh, Staples Center, those places. So it's like you're close, you feel on, you feel in it, and that, and they have a great scoreboard and the sight lines and the lighting. Everything was good. It, the outside, when you walk around, it's sort of like the Brooklyn Stadium, Barclays. It's it's like I don't want to feel like I'm in an office building. Like I want to feel like I'm in a stadium. Like I feel mm -hmm. like I like I want the walls. I don't want it to feel like I'm in a hospital or an office building. I just think it's too sterile. Maybe they need to put more pictures up or more something. And I compare it to the Pfizer Arena, the Milwaukee Bucks Arena I was at, which was cool because they have glass all over and you look at the bars and all those, you know, that where they had the Deer District. You mm -hmm. can see. So when you're in the arena, you just see all the thousands of people outside of the Deer District. That's what you expect. That's cool. Like I like how so I think Pfizer was done a little bit better. And even the Miami Aaron's arena when you walk around you can sort of have see outside the water when you're sort of the chase there was really nothing it just I didn't think walking around it's sort of like the Barclays to me I feel like I'm in like again it's very sterile so that's sort of my whole analysis and it was fun I got to go around to the mission district I went downtown walked around walked all the different places the restaurants it's the, what I don't, what I liked about Greenville, which I didn't like about this, is when you're in Greenville, everybody's in one little area. They're all staying at the hotels mm -hmm. downtown. You're meeting the Auburn fans, the Miami fans, the Duke fans. I'm in San Francisco, and I had Duke stuff on. You might see one Duke fan here. <laughs> what? It's not like it's it's not all in one area, and that's where and there was nothing around the Chase Center, so it's not like you go to a bar and see everybody. So I, from a fan experience, I like Greenville better because you felt like you're meeting fans from all you're these other schools. Part of something schools. bigger. Meanwhile, right. everyone's busy there. Like I went to, like I went. It was so funny. I went to a bar. On, I was on Friday night for dinner a restaurant and we walk in there and they all have the Golden State game on and I'm like oh my gosh they're not going to put the NCAA game but in the back there was a room and there was like five Duke fans I'm, I saw the NCAA I'm like oh they, they got the Purdue <laughs> they got the Purdue St. Peter's game on and I was like how much do you pay to get this on am I going to contribute to the, the fund so but in the end it was good I really enjoyed the experience in San Francisco it was great and uh, I loved it going there let's go back to the Sweet 16 talk about uh, Duke Texas Tech 
Well, remember, Texas Tech was very senior. They're almost super senior. They had players that, and this is one thing we're getting from the tournament. I saw like the Miami Hurricanes average age is like 24, which is older than the starting uh, lineup of Orlando and Oklahoma <laughs> City, like at NBA teams, because these players are able to go back another year, take another year because mm -hmm. of COVID. And you have these players that have been on two or three teams. So they're very experienced. And this guy, Kevin McCullough, who I hadn't seen play before, he's a junior for Texas Tech, very athletic, guard forward, handled the ball, flew around all over the place. Now remember, Duke was a four-point underdog in this game, and uh, Terrence Shannon was the one NBA player. He didn't really play that well game. It had eight had eight points, but uh, and and Texas Tech is known for their defense. But boy, did Duke play amazing. I mean, they were just, if you analyze it, when the guys like Wendell Moore had 12 points, AJ Griffin 11, Pablo Bonchero 7 for 12, 22 points, and then Mark Williamson 16 points, 8 boards, 3 blocks, and Jeremy Roach, who I, I'm going to talk about how much I love him, 7, 11, 15 points. Um, the key was that Duke just shot like 7 for 19 from 3. Mm -hmm. They're not taking a lot of, they're saying, no, 19 threes, but they were in the offense. The key to this Duke team and what they learned from the Michigan State game, what they learned from, from learning is that the problem I've had in the past is that they just settle for threes. And Roach is not a great three-point shooter, and he knows it. And the thing is that he only takes one three. So the key is you can't have your guards go down and just fire up threes. Well, like, it's a three-point game. You have to do it. No, when you have Pablo Banchero, who's six foot ten, who's like a, like a LeBron almost, who can drive the ball, and when Roach goes and gets penetration, it doesn't just stands out there and throws it inside, but he gets the penetration. Then he throws it to Mark Williams, who's like seven feet tall, throws it to him. I mean, I have these pictures. My pictures are amazing for these games at Iron Sports. But you can see all the dunks Duke got because they've utilized their height and their power over these teams. Whereas, remember, I told about Michigan State and Zion. Zion Williams is standing out there and he's taking like yes. 12 shots. And I went back and looked at the Duke-Arkansas game years ago when 1994, when uh, when Duke lost to Arkansas, and Grant Hill shot 11 times in the game. Now, Capel shot 16. Capel was a coach and Chris Collins yes. shot 11. So you have Grant Hill, who at that time was... You know, the, the best player in college the basketball. The best player in college basketball only shot 11 times when Zion Williams when R.J. Barrett almost hit, shot twice as many shots. Mm -hmm. The problem I've had to Duke in the past is, and that's what, why the hurley Leitner teams were great. Bobby Hurley, he made the big shot when he had to, but he knew how to pass the ball. Very Chris Paul-like. Chris mm -hmm. Paul scores, but Chris Paul knows to get it to Booker, knows to get Aiton. That's what you need. And at too many times, Duke's guards have been just fire up threes, fire up threes, don't throw it to... I mean, mm -hmm. I'll get back to that Arkansas game. Grant Hill and Chris Collins came down, and Chris Collins, and Grant Hill says, give me the ball, and Chris Collins goes, don't worry, Grant, I have this, and he, showed, he misses it. At the end of the game, with a chance to win, again, they go down, again, he would not throw the ball to Grant Hill, and it's just like, this team, Roach, I give, his numbers don't look great, but watch how he plays. He makes the smart moves, Duke makes the smart baskets, they they don't take the they work for the best shot and I just that's what I was really impressed with it. I mean, they had there was eleven ties, thirteen lead changes. I mean, they started the game with like four air balls, but then they settled down. <laughs> they were down four at the half, and then they switched to zone in the second half, and that really stymied Texas Tech. So the, the zone Duke plays man to man almost all the time, and they didn't score for six straight possessions. But then Duke went and scored twelve of their final 12, 15 possessions. They made eight. They made their final eight shots from the field. Uh, 49, 49 with eleven minutes to go. AJ Griffin missed a shot and it was like the last missed three they took the rest of the whole game and uh, when Texas Tech went up 56-52 this is what Duke did. Bonchero had a layup. Bonchero to Williams for a dunk. Bonchero for a three. And then, again, Bonchero another. So the plays were, whenever they got pushed back, they didn't just hit the three. They got the good shot. And uh, with 70, you know, at the end of the game, Roach had a jumper. Bonchero had a steal. And Roach had another jumper. Made it 73-68 with a, with a minute and 30 to go. 
game over. Great win for Duke. It's 7-17, Ira on sports. True oldies channel, Justin Heyer of the Finsider joins us at 7-30. So, Ira, let's go to the next game. Well, and, Arkansas Gonzaga. Yeah, Arkansas Gonzaga. And I, we didn't talk about this one off air, but I have to think that you were kind of in line with the rest of America thinking, Gonzaga's got to win this game, right? I was shocked. I was yeah. totally shocked. I feel like they got out of the game. This is the one. Everyone tells me how Gonzaga gets every call. They seem some games to get calls. Boy, they didn't get everything. They were calling foul. Chet Holmgren's like seven foot three or seven foot two. Was very skinny as anything. I mean, he could. He 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 moved and they call a foul on him. He had five fouls and it was a mess. Drew Timmy, they were fouling him left and right, and the, the, the soon probably the college player of the year. And he just could. They would not call fouls on that. But the key was this is a problem with Gonzaga all year. When I saw him, Nemhart was two for eleven. Bolton three for ten, and Swather three for nine they could not their guards couldn't shoot this is that last year Corey Kispert for them was a better shooter than their guards were they were five for 21 from three 30 and 37 percent all overall and J.D. Note the transfer from Jacksonville for Arkansas was their guard he shot nine for 29 two for 12 but he still made the big shots and it was just one of those things where Arkansas has and Trey Wade one of the players for Arkansas he had six threes all year he made four threes in this game like they got six threes and he has four in one game but if you look at the Arkansas players. Tony's a transfer from Pitt. Amude's a transfer from South Dakota State. Jalen and Nute is from Jacksonville. They're all transfers. So this whole, you know, the whole thing is they're all transfers. But everyone's criticizing Gonzaga for, oh, they're overrated. They're over this. They're over that. Look, they beat, they had some good wins this year. Um, they beat uh, Texas Tech. Uh, they lost to Bama. They lost to Duke. They beat UCLA. Um, the last bunch of years, they were the Elite Eight in 2019, Sweet 16 in 2018, the runner-up at UNC in 2017, Elite Eight in 2015, and they were in the championship game last year. Yeah. I, I, they're good. They're turning out players. Everybody is losing. Only one team wins. It's not that easy to win. No, it's not easy. <laughs> and they really went against a team that really muscled them. And, and it was... I just think Gonzaga played poorly. I, I, there were some games, I'll say this, I watched Gonzaga play a ton of games this year, and they coasted in some games, and I think it hurt them. I don't know if the conference hurt them so much, but I do think that they 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 just didn't shoot. I, honestly, the whole year, they never shot as well as the, as past Gonzaga teams, and they were counting on these guys to shoot a lot more than they And did. that's an interesting point, because you brought that up on the show, that Gonzaga's schedule was kind of front-loaded, and then they were going to coast from there, so they maybe didn't have that adversity for the last you know two and a half months. So let's go to see who's punching their ticket to the Final Four, Ira. It's your Dukies versus Arkansas. What happened? Well, Duke ended up winning, and, and it was like one of those things where I just felt like I felt the Texas Tech game, I was nervous. I was really never nervous in this game. They just got the balance scoring again. Wendell Moore at 14 points. A.J. Griffin, 7 for 9. I mean, this, the shooting was through the roof. Wendell Moore, 5 for 10. A.J. Griffin, 7 for 9, 18 points. Pablo Banchero had 16 points. Mark Williams was 6 for 6, 12 boards, 12 points, 3 blocks. And Jeremy Roach, look, he's only 3 for 8, 0 for 1 from 3, 3 for 3 from the foul line, 9 points and 2 assists. But that was, he played perfect. 54% shooting. They only missed 2 free throws. That was another thing. Some of these teams are missing free throws. They out rebounded Arkansas 34-25 and Arkansas only shot uh, 6 for 20 from 3 Nute did not have a good game it, but it was like Duke was up 45-33 at halftime uh, Arkansas went on a 9-2 run but then with 13-20 left Jalen Williams scored and cut it to like 53-48 Coach K called a timeout got everybody settled next thing they do they don't take a stupid 3 Bonchero gets the ball drives I have these great pictures you can see 
I'm starting to like Bonchero as an NBA player because he really knows how to drive and just like get the get to the lane and finish well. I was very impressed. And it took the lead to 63-48. And really the game was I wasn't nervous about this game. This was over. So, so, so Duke is that Duke made its Coach K's thirteenth Final Four, and uh, it was he's was very emotional when the cutting. Like I said, they would cut the nets down. I got great pictures of that. The team was pumped for this. It was so funny. Duke now is the favorite to win the title, but going into the game, people were like, "Oh, they have no shot." Now they, it was funny. Things have really uh, changed quickly across the uh, college landscape. Let's go to the Eastern bracket, and uh, you know I talked about nobody thought Gonzaga would lose. But who thought Purdue was going to lose to the Cinderella of Cinderellas of the last decade, St. Peter's? Horrendous game by Purdue. I mean, Matt Painter is their coach. I feel like this, again, I going in, Purdue, you understand St. Peter's upset out of nowhere at Kentucky. You always have an upset mm. like that. The next week, they got lucky. game, they got lucky. They played Murray State, another team that maybe they could beat. They weren't a, as talented-wise. They got lucky, sort of that. But against Purdue, this is usually when the, the Cinderellas go to, like, it's the, over. The glass slipper the, breaks. The, the glass, it's <laughs> over. But Purdue was up. I mean, it was just, it was like, one of these, like, they were eight. They, first of all, they were 18 and a half point underdog against Kentucky, and then 13 against Purdue. Uh, and it was just unbelievable. The endowment, how about the St. Peter's endowment is 37 million. Coach Calipari's contract is 86 million over 37 million. And this is a team, St. Peter's, they played LIU on November 23rd in front of 400 people. Uh, so if anybody says they're on the bandwagon of the St. Peter's bandwagon, and uh, they were they lost to VCU, St. John's, Providence, Siena, St. Francis, Stony Brook. They were three and six to begin the season. And, and that was on in January. And they ended up going 13 and five the rest of the way. They beat Iona, Iona they lost to Iona twice. If Iona doesn't lose to Ryder, which is the Rick Pitino coaching Iona, they lose to Ryder. Iona's in the tournament, not St. Peter's. They probably beat St. Peter's again. And they, they sort of made it work. But uh, uh, Purdue was crazy. They have this Zach Eady as their star, is the seven foot four, one of their star players. They just forced the ball into him. He's so big. Again, they had the size, but they didn't know how to use it right. Uh, Jonathan Ivey, the person they think is going to be a future lottery pick, was terrible. Four for 12 with six two turnovers. Um, but at the one point in the game, it seemed like Purdue had the lead. Uh, with five minutes left, they were up by 56 52. So you're thinking, they have the lead. They're not going to blow a team like blow that lead. But then St. Pete went on a 58 scoring run. Travion Williams for Purdue misses a shot. They took three throws they were missing everything at the end of the game was a total mess and uh gotta give credit because uh st peter's made all their free throws at the end of the game and to win the game really crazy stuff it kind of shook the world i think people were like wait what just happened here so let's <laughs> it go to shook the- purdue they were the players were like wait it's not over let us keep playing we can't have <laughs> lost the game so in a much more competitive matchup we would think unc versus ucla it was both that this was the whole region that had good because that game was great ucla dominant ucla played well the whole game like that i think either one of these if again if ucla would have won that game they would have blown out st peter's whoever won this game would have and it was like but caleb love i mean unc was in trouble but caleb love had 20 of the final 27 points. He was draining threes all over the place. Uh, played great. UCLA led most majority of the game, but then Jack, Jamie Jaime Jacoes and Johnny Juzang, who has been their stars, you saw in their run last year, they shot three for 19 in the second half. And uh, it was 64-61, UCLA with two minutes to go. And I'm like, UCLA's going to pull this out. But Caleb came down, hit a three, came back, hit another three. And uh, UNC was able to pull this off. And now setting up the Duke, well, they're not yet. They won that game to play St. Peter's, but I'm, we'll sort of go past that game. Yeah, <laughs> we just... Ju- just for one second, it was a number eight versus a 15. Nobody saw that coming here to go to the final four. <laughs> so <laughs> go to the south bracket here, Ira. It was going to be uh, Houston lining up against the number one seed, Arizona. Yeah, and that was this game was crazy because Houston was. I mean, Arizona looked good. And that this is one thing that's totally surprised me in terms of how I mean, Arizona was 33-4 and four going to the game. But Houston really led the entire game. I mean, 13 minutes ago, Arizona cut it to three, but that, like, that was it. Houston was just 
just is dominating the boards. Uh, it, something happened. Arizona just did not. I've seen them play. Their star, Benedict Maldoran, was 4 for 14 shooting. Uh, they had another play, Tubeless, who was 0 for 8 shooting. It was just really weird. And I got to give Houston a lot of credit. It's like one of those wins where Houston won that game. And I'm like, wow, they're I felt Houston after that win looked like they looked like a Final Four team mm-hmm. because their defense was just so dominating. And Arizona, during the year, they, they won the Pac-12. They looked great. They just, Houston played perfect game. The other one uh, in that um, bracket it was going to be Villanova versus Michigan, and Villanova looked pretty good in this one. Well, again, that was a perfect. Jay Wright has won two national championships in the past like six years, but it, it, they, they're playing players like Connor Gillespie has played 154 games. Jermaine Samuels, 151 games. I mean, these are fifth-year players that are you know, playing in their fifth, some players playing in their sixth years. It's just amazing how well experienced they are, and they really know what they're doing. And uh, this game would have blown. Eli Brooks played great for Michigan. He kept hitting threes, but uh, Nova was just draining their threes, played great and uh, moved on to the final against uh, Houston. Yeah, so that, that's what it was going to be to go to the final four. And I knew this was going to be a good game. I was excited for Villanova versus Houston. Well, it was. I was excited for the game because I thought it, it was like a perfect matchup where it was like, could, could Villanova use their coaching and, and figure out a way? It was just, they both teams just couldn't shoot. I mean, I've never seen a team where both teams shot under 30% for mm-hmm. a game. I mean, it was like- This game must have been under by 40 points. Houston shot 30%. They were just one for 20 from three. One for 20. One for twenty, and they almost won the game. I mean, (laughs) and Nova shot five for twenty-one from three, and it was just one of those things where Nova was up twenty-seven twenty at the half. Houston cut the lead to two, and then missed ten. As much as Duke was making all their shots at the game, Houston missed all their shots. But the key thing that happened at the end of the game, Justin Moore, one of the star forwards for Villanova, tears his Achilles in the game, Mm -hmm. which I think just. They, Villanova does not have depth at all. He was one of their star players. I have, I can't understand how they can be Kansas, you know, without Justin Moore. That to me, that was the key of the game. Is when you lose a player like Justin Moore's ability. It's, I feel terrible for him because again, he's someone who's just been sort of the heart and soul of the team. It tears Achilles right at the end of the game. Let's talk about the uh, Midwest bracket. And Kansas is going to have to go through Providence to go on to the uh, Elite Eight. Well, Ed Cooley's done a great job at Providence. They were 13 and 13 last year. Providence had this great run. They were a four seed. Uh, and they were at the halftime, though. Again, one of these low scores, 26-17 Kansas. And uh, the only thing that made this game weird was Kansas was up by 13. And suddenly, I'm watching it, and like they're only up by one. I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> and then suddenly, Kansas went up to a 7-0 run. Remy Martin played great for them. The Big 12 player of the year, Agabi, didn't play well with five points. But it was like... Kansas only shot two for 14 from three, 39%, but Providence, they were able to do enough. It, it made me, gave me pause about Kansas and gives me pause going into. I think that if they, again, they did not look good that game, but they'd be a good Providence team. So I heard Jim Laraniega on the radio here in um, South Florida earlier. He does the play-by-play for, the, for Miami, and he said, we lost the weigh-in in this game. And then he said, you know, it was like playing a hockey team versus our basketball team. They just felt out physical, and he thinks that they got beat up even though they beat Iowa State. That's an interesting. I mean, it was it was it was a weird game because I got to give Ohio State, oh, Iowa State credit. Um, their coach last year, they they took it over Ottenberger. They were two and twenty-two. They've run from two and twenty-two to twenty-two and thirteen. I had the greatest turnaround in history of anything. And uh, he was at South Dakota State. UNLV. UNLV actually pushed him out after two years. The coach of Iowa State. I think anybody would take him right now. But it's like one of those games where Miami again looked great. I mean, they. I, mean, I saw yeah. them against Auburn and Greenville, and I was so impressed. It was one of those probably the most impressive of any game I've seen was what they did to Auburn in that second half. A great Auburn team, and you see how Miami played against Iowa State, and then going against Kansas. Watching both, I said, 
I think Miami's going to the Final Four. I really yeah. did. I, I think that is where I felt like Miami seemed to have this aggressiveness with Cameron McCuskey, Charlie Moore. I mean, these are, again, these are 24-year-old players. Wartenberg is 23. Jordan Miller, 23. I felt Laranega had them going. And then you watch the first half, and I'm traveling to the airport on uh, Sunday, and they're up. And I get to the airport, I watch the first half, and then I go get, I'm trying to find a place to watch it. Everybody's watching soccer at the San Francisco airport. So it's pretty hard to get the final four when there's soccer match, I find a bar with it. And then that second half. It wasn't what you were expecting at all. Uh, no, I mean, it was just unbelievable. With uh, it, it 15, 27, the, the outs, they, the, the outs, they outscored them uh, 47 to 15. By 32, it was one of the mm. biggest turnarounds in the history of basketball in terms of Miami scored 50. It's just, I can't even read the stats. 15 points in the second half. They didn't even make a shot. I mean, it was just unbelievable what happened. Everything fell apart for Miami. They didn't know how to stop it. And then by then, you know, they lose by 26. You're up six and a half time in a college basketball game. This is not the NBA. There's mm -hmm. 30-second shot clock. How that happened. And I think Miami, it's just, it's total shell-shocked. And, and it just, it's like one of those things where, what a great year that Miami had. What a great run. But that second half, they're going to remember now forever. The fact that they were outscored by 30-some points and a half. Just about a minute till we get to Justin Heyer from Finsider and the Aqua and Orange Show podcast do Carolina Ira and I didn't realize they'd never met in the tournament before it's happening in Coach K's final year. They couldn't have drawn it up better. What happens? I think Shakespeare or someone, there's some <laughs> author who's writing this. I think it's great. I mean, remember earlier in the year, Duke beat Carolina by 20. The game wasn't even close. And then in the final, the coronation and everything about Coach K in the final game, Duke's up in that game and they blow the lead and Coach K has to come out and say, in front of all the Duke faithful and say, I'm sorry, this team was so embarrassed, all this other stuff. So again, I've been to some of the greatest, the loudest arenas ever been have been Duke Carolina games. The rivalry is as great as you possibly can be. The schools are only a few miles apart. Part. The teams have been great forever. They pull. They, it's just, there's. It is to me the best rivalry in all of sports because each team is always good, and it, yep. and there's not one dominant team. They've been they back and forth, winning titles. Whether it's Roy Williams or whether it, it, you know it's certainly now Hubert or Dean Smith and Coach K. This has been the, the, just the battle after battle. Carolina owns Carolina. Duke the nation, and uh, it is very. It's going to be great. But look, I think Duke is Duke's figured out how to win. I think Duke beat them by 20 before early in the year. I think Carolina's playing great. Unless Caleb Love scores 40 and just hits threes all over the place, Duke is winning this game. And also the fact that they lost, they know they lost. I mean, they they were they woke up. That loss helped them. But I got to give Virginia Tech credit because in the ACC tournament, Virginia Tech beat both Duke and UNC. So two teams in the Final Four, yeah. they beat. So you got to give Virginia Tech credit for that. And what about the other side, Kansas Nova? What do you think happens it's here? It's not even close. I can't believe you told me the line was four. I, I, four I, I half, checked. Yeah. I saw before when they more, and I couldn't believe it's four. I just cannot believe it's going to uh, Kansas. I, I'd be shocked if Villanova. I, I give Jay Wright a ton of credit. He is the master at this mm -hmm. tournament. Um, I would like to have him. He seems, you know, winning the two national titles and everything, uh, always having his team competitive, rarely ever getting upset. But uh, Kansas is going to blow them out. And then I think you're going to get Duke, Kansas, and Duke will win. This, I, 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 Duke is going to win Coach K's sixth title, and it's going to be a storybook ending. I'm it's, rooting for you, Ira. It's just amazing. It, the story does need this. Let's go to uh, Justin Heyer here. He's from Finsider, also the Aqua and Orange Show podcast. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. I know it's probably been a pretty hectic week for you. Guys, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It has been quite the week indeed. So before we get to that, Ira wants to talk a lot about, you know, what's just transpired, but I want to go back and hear it from the real hardcore Miami Dolphins fan, because when Brian Flores was let go, me and Ira were kind of shocked. We thought he was an excellent coach. We thought they were building something. Now within, what, six weeks, we've seen Mike McDaniel come in, and this team is on a totally different trajectory. So do you want to explain to me what a Miami Dolphins fan's life has been like since the firing and where we are now? A whirlwind. That's, that's the word I'd use to, to describe it. But from from 
someone who's been born and raised in South Florida, has been following the Miami Dolphins for a long time's perspective, what we've seen over the course of the past couple of weeks, the past week or so in particular, is what a lot of fans, I think, would describe as un-Dolphins-like in a lot of positive I, I said that to open the show. This is not a big Dolphins right, thing. Exactly. Exactly, and the team has seen opportunities to upgrade the roster at very important spots in very serious ways and has said, you know what, we believe that this team is capable of winning and to keep up in such a stacked AFC that is only upgrading these moves needed to be made. Ira, you have anything? Well, I guess the point is, I mean, I think the talk is the Tyreek Hill trade. I mean, it was one of the things that I, no one at Kansas City, I was in Kansas City for two games, the Steeler playoff game and the championship game against the Bengals. I don't think I heard, I read, heard talk radio for, I guess, five, six, seven straight days. Not one person said, oh, we're, we should trade Tyreek Hill for draft picks. <laughs> like, this came out of nowhere. And what a move, though, for the Dolphins and of the team to pick him up is the Dolphins. Absolutely out of nowhere. I mean, I was, I was, I saw this on my Twitter timeline a couple of days ago, and I was like, "This, I have to. This has to be a parody account. This, uh, what I'm looking at, can't be real right now." And lo and behold, it was. It looked like his agent, Drew Rosenhaus, said, "You know what? These talks aren't necessarily going where we want them to go." And the Chiefs said, "Okay, you know, we are willing to to, to let you look around." And Tyreek Hill and his agent said, okay, where do we want to go? And the Chiefs did right by him and said, where do you want to go? We'll try to make it happen. And, you know, kudos to Chris Greer and that entire front office. They were able to say, this opportunity is coming up out of nowhere. Let's dive all the way in, see if we can make this happen. And at the end of the day, not only were they willing to give up the draft capital, but they said, we'll also give this superstar player a contract that he needs to, to, to come down to South Florida. And it also sounded like, a little bit of luck for the Dolphins, too, in that Tyreek Hill really wanted Miami from the start. So it was an aligning of the stars, so to speak. Yes, I mean, the day of the trade, the rumor was Jets or Dolphins. And I'm like thinking, well, no state income taxes in Florida. I knew he lived in Florida. And uh, I just, I didn't I didn't really believe, like I thought, boy, that seems to be an easy call. But you didn't know. You, at one point you thought it was going to be the Jets. But I guess you hit the nail on the head. There were two components of this. Not only the 29th pick, the 50th pick, the fourth, two fourth round picks for the for, for Tyreek Hill, who's been the first or second most dynamic wide receiver in the game, but also the commitment of 25, 30, you know, how they do the cap dynamics. But to take such big part of your salary cap, something that Kansas City was unwilling to do, but make that commitment. Well, the big difference there between Miami and Kansas City is Kansas City has a player who they're paying nearly half a billion dollars to to play quarterback. Miami obviously does not have that at the moment and is able to say, well, we've been saying we're going to go in all in on Tua, and if we really want to give him a shot and we really want to see by the end of this year, is he the guy? well, let's give him every shot possible. Let's give him the most dynamic wide open in the league. Let's also, you know, give him one of the best left tackles in the NFL. And they are holding true to their word. They are surrounding him with everything that he needs to potentially succeed. And then you mentioned about the left tackle, the Terran Armstead from New Orleans, signing him to a five-year, $75 million deal, the, I think the highest contract for an offensive lineman in football. The move that What a move that that came from. I mean, that was, that was before the Tyreek Hill move, but to solidify that offensive line, because people are saying, well, Tua, you know, he can't do what he did in Alabama because he's gonna, he, has to, he can't, doesn't have time. But now this is like trying to give him the time to throw, to, throw down the field to Tyreek Hill and to Waddle. Exactly. I mean, Miami had the 32nd ranked, that's last offensive mm-hmm. line in the NFL, per pro football focus last year. How any quarterback, minus maybe the top one or two guys in the league, are supposed to succeed behind a line like that is, is nearly impossible. 
And so to get him to run Armstead, who, yes, he's had his injury issues, but when he's been on the field, has been one of, if not the best pass-protecting tackle in the NFL. They also got Connor Williams, who, despite some penalty issues, has been a very good pass protector. They are starting to rebuild that O-line, and when you're trying to get the ball down the field to these types of playmakers, you need a little bit of time. It's like people have been, people were, um, were saying that Tua wasn't throwing deep enough. Well, how are you supposed to throw deep when there's someone in your face after about two seconds? So now he'll have that time, and now it's that real test. Okay, you have all the playmakers. You have the rebuilt O-line. Can you now succeed with this much revamped supporting cast and the running game, too, with those two running backs, uh, Mostert and Edmonds there as well? Well, I mean, that's the jump from the, the wide receivers. They signed Cedric Williams from the Cowboys. People say, okay, that's great. Upgrade. Put him with Waddle. And then you franchise tag Gasicki, who people consider one of the top four or five tight ends in the game. They're looking great. So uh, the Williams signing, my Cowboy fans are like, he's good. Like, he, they didn't use him well. Like, Dak didn't throw him the ball. Like, the, I'm hearing that. And certainly bringing back Gasicki, who was tremendous there with Tua. Uh, you're, and it, then to put Hill into that mix with Waddle. That's where people are saying, what a, what a, a tandem. What a, not just tandem. And what a group. This suddenly goes from Jalen Waddell, one of the best rookie wideouts uh, of the last bunch of years, Mike Isecki, and, well, I'm sometimes healthy Devontae Parker. Yeah, half of Devontae Parker. You have <laughs> one of the best supporting casts in the entire NFL in the span of one offseason, and let's not forget an offensive-minded head coach who's been lauded for his genius on that side of the ball in so many ways, too. And for all these people who play fantasy football, guessing the Miami Dolphin running back is probably, I mean, people have, how much hair has been lost? For the last four years, yeah. For figuring out who is going to run, who's going to have this. I mean, you're still going to have that, but usually how many games have you had where you've had 20 carries, two yards, the Miles Gaskins, all that. Suddenly you get Chase Edmonds from Arizona, Raheem Mostard, who we remember from the Green Bay game. I mean, that's one reason why Aaron Rodgers wasn't in the Super Bowl when Jimmy G Mm -hmm. was, is because they couldn't stop Raheem Mostard. I mean, even Aaron Rodgers couldn't stop Raheem Mostard. So that, what, what an addition to the running game for someone, McDaniel, who's known for his running back prowess in terms of how to utilize them. Absolutely. And if you look at just the numbers, it's like, okay, well, Chase, uh, Chase Edmonds got a, a reasonably uh, more rich contract in terms of the average per year. So you think he'll get the first crack at the starting job. He also fits that team perfectly. But when you look at the way Mike McDaniel and the San Francisco offense has rotated running backs over the, the last few years, and also the fact that Raheem Mostert and more recently Chase Edmonds have had a little bit of injury issues. There's no question that both of these guys are going to get significant touches, and I wouldn't be surprised you're talking fantasy football if both of them, uh, all you know, many weeks of the year, are going to be somewhat fantasy-relevant or even have some breakout games that win you weeks. You know, and I'm with you on that. And as a fantasy guy, I'm all over getting that handcuff because you're going to be able to get it much more affordably than other ones. And yeah, if one of them does go down, the workload for you know the other is going to be fantastic. I do want to ask you though. You know, you talked earlier about this is make it or break it for Tua. What do you think the leash is here? Because I know Mike McDaniel doesn't want to lose. And Teddy Bridgewater coming in, great veteran presence. He's a good guy in the locker room. But how much leeway do you think the Dolphins organization is ready to give Tua now that he should have the weapons? I would guess that based on the way McDaniel has spoken, based on the way Chris Greer has spoken, I mean, at the owners' meeting today, McDaniel clarified that they brought in Teddy Bridgewater to be to his backup. Both guys are aware of it, and that is, the, that, that is it, period. And so I would be shocked if, barring an absolute meltdown in performance several weeks in a row, we see two uphold for Teddy Bridgewater. And I think it's, uh, Tua is the starter unless he is hurt. 
type of situation. You invested a top five pick in him. Mike McDaniel has been doing nothing but talking him up. And now you have surrounded him with all the tools needed to succeed. My guess is unless, like I said, there's an absolute meltdown in play, Tua is the guy for the entire year. And, of course, again, barring, barring injury. And it's almost like they're creating the Alabama. When, when Tua was there, people weren't questioning his arm strength. I mean, people say tanking for Tua because they watched what he was doing and throwing to Waddle and Judy and all the, and, uh, all the stars that Bama had. He put on a team that he couldn't do those things, and then he struggled. But I think that's where – I think, again, that when his rookie year, forcing him in after the hip injury and not having Ryan Fitzpatrick there, I think that set him back too. I think you know that's why Patrick Mahomes didn't – I don't think he took a snap. I think only the last game of the year he took a snap. I, I think it would have been, I think, wiser to keep Tua – that rookie year and not try to force him into the lineup. Yeah, you, it's really tough to know exactly how much the hip injury may have impacted his first year. You have to imagine with an injury that was that uh, catastrophic in nature that it's been pretty miraculous that he's able to come back from, but that probably impacted his play, whether it was mental or physical or both in his first year. Now, several years removed from that, being able to totally focus on improving in other ways ex- besides just getting healthy probably will help quite a bit over this over this next year and having this full off season now to work with Mike McDaniel, learn that playbook, learn this new system um, with an, a system that seems to be based not only on personnel, but also in the way Mike McDaniel is talking about how things are going to be run with play action and the run scheme tailored around to uh, will probably help quite a bit as well. Can you remember a time when the enthusiasm for the Dolphins has been this high, I mean, it's like the time it was, it was, it was growing a little, and I think the Hill just lit that match. I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I just can't. I don't know what their season ticket sales or whatever, but just walking around and talking to people, the it's, I've never seen this enthusiasm for the Dolphins. I mean, as much as there's all these great teams, the AFC and all these other, you have all these other. It seems like that is like we're all in, and we're. I just, I love it. I mean, being down here and seeing the Dolphins being this excitement is. I, I, the only game I saw this year was when they played the Texans. So. <laughs> it is so funny you say that. I actually saw uh, a tweet the other day from uh, Andy Slater, who does a, a lot of stuff down here in South Florida, said uh, the Miami Dol- Dolphins sold, and I just found quoting here, a ton of season tickets today. That was the Tyreek Hill trade day. Huge afternoon of premium sales source told him. Uh, I, just, I just found this now. And uh, I, I'm not surprised. I mean, who doesn't want to go see a dynamic offense like that? I don't remember the last time the Dolphins, like you uh, just asked, had this much excitement heading into the year, especially on the offensive side of the ball where people are just chomping at the bit for September to roll around. Are you a little nervous about the defense? We're not talking about the defense much. I know they haven't made the moves there. I just a little, you know, some concern maybe on the defensive side? Especially the way the season ended uh, last year, and you know you could look at who they were playing, and it was not uh, it's not a murderer's row of quarterbacks by any means. But the defense played really well down the stretch last year, and so the Dolphins knew that they had a finite amount of resources, a large number of resources for sure, but a finite number of resources, and they said let's invest on the side of the ball that needs a lot more help, and that was the offense. And they said in the meantime, let's keep consistency on the defense, keeping the defensive coordinator, retaining Emmanuel Ogba, I think was a huge move, you know, him and Phillips on the edge. You kept most of that linebacker core, the entire mm-hmm. secondary intact. I wouldn't be surprised if they looked to maybe add one more piece, maybe a little bit more depth needed at linebacker. But in general, given the, the level of talent on that side of the ball, leaving Howard, Javon Holland, Jerome Baker, Emmanuel Ogba, Jalen Phillips, Byron Jones, Christian Wilkins. There's a lot of talent there. And so I think the only question is, can they keep the momentum going from last year? 
but given given the consistency that you're keeping there, not only in coaching but in players, I'd say that that's probably not that doesn't need to be top of mind worry for for Dolphins fans or for the team. And Justin, before we let you go, you know, we talked earlier, we're really entrenched now in South Florida with Tyreek and with Jalen. Cedric Williams, great player too. And I'm hearing a lot, especially in the last 48 hours, about Devontae Parker being on the block and getting phone calls. Have you heard anything about potential suitors or what they could possibly get if Devontae Parker does get shipped out of Miami? So, you know, we've been reading and hearing potentially that uh, I think it was uh, Barry Jackson that Harold was reporting out there yeah. also that there are some teams that are interested in Devontae Parker. The Eagles could make a lot of sense given their needs uh, at wide receiver and the type of wide receiver they need to pair with Devonta Smith. The thing is, the Dolphins would not save a ton of cap space by trading Devontae Parker, and so to actively choose to get rid of extra depth at the position for not much reward, I don't think Devontae Parker is going to be netting you like a high-round pick. I don't think anyone thinks that at this point in his career and the injury concerns. So I think he provides you a lot more as an option on the field than he would in a return for a trade. I think the only situation where you see that happen is if a team comes in and says, we want Devontae Parker as a starter. We see that you might need starting help at center or right tackle or what have you. So that is the only situation where I see it would make sense to move him. Otherwise, given the fact that there's not a whole lot of cap relief available there, it's a very manageable contract, I would say probably not. So at this point, probably about 50-50, depending on whether or not a team wants to give Miami an offer that can't refuse them to speak. <laughs> Great stuff here from uh, Justin Hire. Justin, a lot of places to hear or read your work. How do we do it? So definitely it's finsider.com, explanations of finsider.com. Been with them for a while and uh, definitely would uh, we'd definitely appreciate you guys coming over and reading some of our stuff. Also, the Aqua and Orange Show podcast. You can find it in video form on YouTube, audio, pretty much everywhere else you find your podcast, Spotify, Apple, what have you. And I'm always on Twitter at HireJustin. That's at H-I-E-R Justin. Justin Heyer, thank you so much for joining us here on Ira on Sports. It's 746. Thanks this is the... Me, anytime. 746. This is the uh, oldies 95.9 and 106.9. So, Ira, you know, we talked a lot about Tua there. They're, we're really running out of musical chairs here for some of these quarterbacks. There's just not a lot of positions left. Let's talk about where we are as far as the, you know, quarterback carousel looks. Well, I broke them down. I, we talked about this last <laughs> week. I, I considered those 13 quarterbacks. You could disagree with some of this, and I, other people might say is I think there's 13 people that are set. They're not going to draft anybody. Like They're all in. This is their quarterback. In Buffalo, Josh Allen, Cincinnati, Joe Burrow, Cleveland, Deshaun Watson, Tennessee, Ryan Tannehill, Kansas City, Mahomes, Vegas is Carr, Chargers, Herbert, Denver, Russell Wilson, Indianapolis, Matt Ryan, Dallas, Dak Prescott, Rams, Matthew Stafford. Packers, Aaron Rodgers, and Bucks, Tom Brady. Even though this could be his last year, it's mm-hmm. like these guys are. This is all in. Like I don't yeah. like. They have trash. They might pick some. We talked about a late round draft pick for a quarterback. Top two picks are not going to be a quarterback right, at, at, by any means. And yeah. then I think that there's two interesting situations: is Baltimore's Lamar Jackson, who was former MVP of the league, and Arizona's Kyler Murray. They're both under their final couple year. They're both the year of the rookie contract. They're not going to get franchised, but they haven't done an extension yet. Lamar's issue is that his mom's negotiated his contract. It doesn't have an agent. There seems to be he wants to stay in Baltimore, but I think it's weird with that. Kyler, there's definitely some friction with he wants more money. A lot of friction. But I I think (laughs) in the end, these teams have these star quarterbacks. I can't imagine that they wouldn't pay them. Like this is not a design. They're both model citizens. All this other thing. So I can't imagine their deals. You know, Kyler Murray's starting to play for the A's. That's not an issue. Let's not. You're not playing for Oakland A's. 
disappointment. <laughs> I agree with you on those two. So sure. I think those two. And then and then I said the ones that are on rookie deals, like Jacksonville's Trevor Lawrence, Jets' Zach Wilson, they're, that's who they're set with. And I think Chicago with Justin Fields is all in on Justin Fields, too. Several rookies, I mean, Pats have Mac Jones. I mean, they're set with him. Miami's with Tua and Philadelphia, Jalen Hurts and Giants, Daniel Jones. And we thought Daniel Jones may be iffy, but they're talking about doing an extension with him. So they're committed to him for this year at least. So you're right on this one. There's no draft pick early for them. And then and then so those are that that takes up twenty-two of the positions. And then the two I don't have an idea on are San Francisco. Because they like Trey Lance, but they also have Jimmy Garoppolo. What are they gonna do in that situation with them? And I think Minnesota has Kirk Cousins. Now they would draft somebody, but because they're paying Kirk thirty-five million. But if Kirk Cousins takes them, I like Minnesota last year when the Steelers play them. If they go into the NFC Championship game, they go to the Super Bowl. Kirk Cousins is going to sign like a, a Stafford type yeah. contract. And people don't realize Kirk Cousins through like twelve weeks last year was a top three quarterback. He was very very good until it got late in the season, which that does happen with him. But it's not like you have someone ready to go to be better than him. So I think those situations are semi set. And then the stop gaps one. So there's we're now to the final eight. Pittsburgh, Mitch Trubisky. There's no warm and fuzzy feeling. I'm not. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is a, this is a, I'm uh, more high on Trubisky than you. I think. <laughs> Houston, Davis Mills, Washington, Carson Wentz, New Orleans, Jameis Winston, Atlanta, Marcus Mariota, and Detroit, Jared Goff. Clearly, all these positions you look for these teams to draft quarterbacks to be in the move to maybe pick up a some trade or do something, and then not set at all. Where Seattle, Drew Locke, and Carolina, Sam Darnell. So those are the positions. And then when you look at Baker, I mean, honestly, I gave you the final those eight. Baker Mayfield might be better than any one of those eight. so I, I think th- he is. So I do think that there is a position. Now, the problem is Pittsburgh makes the most. When I was at the game with Ben, I was looking at that, thinking in my mind, if you know Deshaun Watson ever went there, if something with Baker, they got rid of him, he'd fit in well. I just don't think Cleveland would ever want to be playing against Baker Mayfield. Like, that's just, they're not going to trade him. So I think it's more going to be Seattle or Carolina. I, I personally think, I think they're, they're using him as an insurance policy. What if Deshaun Watson does get suspended for a year? This team wants to win now. I think they're going to keep him until they know exactly what's happening with Deshaun. And since they're not, what are they going to get back from a fifth, six-round pick? It's not worth it. Right. I think it's your. They have Jacoby Brissett. They brought in, but we saw Jacoby Brissett from last year for yeah. Miami. He's not that. And when you're a team like Cleveland, you don't. The one thing is they want to go to the playoffs next year. They can't afford if he's suspended six, seven, eight games. You can't be zero and six and think you're going to make the playoffs when he comes back. We, we should have talked to Justin about that because Brissett looked pretty bad last yeah, year. So, but I think that's where I'm thinking. And then you think what, what Jimmy Garoppolo, who has done having shoulder surgery, who's going to trade for a quarterback that had shoulder mm-hmm. surgery? Supposedly, he, see, he didn't tell San Francisco he was even getting the, the surgery. He's doing the subway commercials, and we make fun of Baker with the progressive. <laughs> commercials, but he's doing the subway commercials, but I would love it. It's so funny where, where Baker Mayfield goes for his next job, how, what kind of commercials he'll do. Like, I mean, is he going to move and those things? But I do think it's going to be, it, it's intriguing. And then we see the issue though, is that the rookie class with the Kenny Pickett's and all those are, it's just not there. And Malik Willis, it, people is no one's drafting. It's hard to think that they're going to draft a rookie and say like last year, Trevor Lawrence, you're the starter. Zach Wilson, you're the starter. Justin Fields, you're the starter. The only team I could see in the top 10 is Seattle with their newly acquired number nine pick going after someone. But that's, I think everyone else is looking to build depth or they have a super young guy that they want to let play. So two years ago, we had a, a, a Super Bowl champion who brought back all 22 starters. That's not usually how it goes. And it's a little bit of a luxury. The Rams didn't have that. But what snuck under the radar a lot was Allen Robinson. 
going to the Rams. I think he is a fantastic receiver, kind of buried in, in Chicago, and this got kind of brushed to the side when Devontae Adams got traded. Totally. We talked about it a little bit because it broke a little last week, but I agree. Allen Robinson has had no quarterback throwing in the ball, and we talk about – see. The Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill's trade is like, is it the quarterback, you know, chicken before the egg? Is it the wide receiver or the quarterback? And these teams are the like— teams think the other way. And, but, <laughs> and you're also seeing that quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers, you want to make $50 million a year? Well, you're not getting your $25 mm-hmm. million quarter wide receiver. For homes, you want to make $50 million. You can get one. So, and the teams are saying, well, I'd rather pay the quarterback than the wide receiver. Look, it's just interesting to see. Now, I guess, again, the Raiders, Adams, Carr makes money. He doesn't make as much money as Mahomes mm-hmm. does, but he's also up for a new contract, too. So that's going to be interesting to see how the Raiders have fit everything in. But clearly, the Dolphins, with Tua earning, this is why they, they're going in all in now. Tua makes, what, $7, 8000000 million a year. So he's there able to use another other 40 to sign all mm-hmm. these other players, and that's the key thing. Sneaky move that I liked, it, it kind of a ramification of Allen Robinson, was Robert Woods, who of course tore his ACL. He's going to the Tennessee Titans, and the Titans, they thought bringing in a a very old Julio Jones was going to be a difference maker. Meanwhile, Robert Woods has a lot left in the tank. He'll probably miss the first half of the season, but talk about an upgrade on an offense that needed another receiver. I think Robert Woods could have a sneaky good uh, impact there. I just think, as much as we talk about the AFC and how great the AFC is, forget people forget Tennessee was the number one seed. Yeah. I, that's just, they yeah. just forget that. And I think it's Ryan, the whole Ryan Tannehill and all those other things. I mean, they were the number one seed last year. With all these other quarterbacks, they were the number one seed. Any uh, other big acquisitions you want to talk about? I like what the Bengals did. The Bengals added three offensive linemen. We saw mm-hmm. that was a problem. Burrow was getting sacked and sacked and sacked. They brought in uh, a center from New England. They brought in a guard, Kappa, from Tampa. I think that's really was a big move. They That's something they a need they had to address. Of course, they have the draft to also address a little of it. Um, and then uh, I guess that would be the one point. And then I think we did we talk last week, I think, about the Randy, Randy Gregory mm-hmm. uh, signing from Dallas to Denver. I felt bad. Gregory's been suspended forever. Uh, J- Jerry Jones kept him on and you know, kept keeping him, didn't cut him, whatever. And then finally they gave him a contract and then he didn't like some wording. So he goes to, to Denver and Dallas is like, what? We've been so nice to you. We did this and yeah. you're signing for no more money by going to another team. So I thought that was, but I think one of the points and the other thing I want to mention is the teams like Kansas City, why they gave up Tyreek Hill and the Green Packers. If you look at the rookie wide receiver class, Drake London of USC, Alavi and Wilson of Iowa State, uh, Burks from Arkansas, Jamison Williams from Alabama, Dotson from Penn State. There's going to be 10 players drafted in the first round. And people are like saying now, draft the wide receivers, pay them a couple million dollars a year. That's all you need. You don't need to pay a wide receiver $25 million a year. And in the last two seasons, we've seen massive studs in the first 50 picks or so. Wide receivers that are instant difference makers. Jamar Chase for Cincinnati. Just last year with and Waddle. Justin, Justin Jefferson, Jefferson from yes. Minnesota. The, so. You know, we've seen the impact. I keep hearing Chris Olave to Green Bay because he's the most polished route runner. What is Aaron, uh, Aaron Rodgers like? Someone who's there when the ball gets there. So I wouldn't be surprised with that. One thing I will say before we move on, Tampa Bay might be in a little trouble next year. Not only did they lose Alex Kappa to free agency, Ali Marpet, their left guard, retired. And he's a Pro Bowl caliber left guard. So I wouldn't be shocked if they go line heavy um, early in this draft this year. Let's go to the NBA, Ira. Our Miami Heat are in a little bit of a free fall here. I'm not liking this. Well, I said about two weeks ago, they have the East. They, it would take. It would be impossible. <laughs> it would be you St. Did. Peter's beating North Carolina. Impossible for them. And they so they go to play Philadelphia, and you hear, oh, I'm like excited. I'm going to watch this game. It's going to be in Philadelphia, but they don't have Embiid. And, and then you hear that Joel Embiid and James Harden aren't playing. Load management. I'm like, oh, this will be great. Easy win. They lose. They lose yeah. the Sixers. Well, that would be hard. They're like, okay. Well, then Golden State's coming to town. And I, I was going to go to the tour so I couldn't go to the Golden State game and everything. But then Curry is, of course, out and Draymond Green and Klay Thompson, they're out. Well, you'll think that Heat are going to win that. No, it's not that they lose that game. And then they play the New York Knicks. So the New York Knicks are 
just trying to lose games, doing whatever's yes. possible. So they're down by 23 in the game. Uh, they were, it was, it was, uh, it, it, they were, the game was over. The Knicks took out all their starters, put quickly in, and their G League team. So their G League team's in the game. Somehow, they outscored the Heat 38-15 in the fourth quarter. Insane. Then they come back to Brooklyn, and I'm at the Chase Center, and I'm walking watching the Duke game, and I go back to get something, a drink, and, I, and one of the TVs, why the TV would have the Heat game on? And I look down there, like, the Heat are losing to the Nets by 30. Like, that's on one of the TVs. And I'm like, so now they've lost four in a row. It's been a total disaster. They're playing Sacramento tonight, and then they've got, but they're on the road against Boston, uh, Chicago, Toronto, and then just the two more weeks, then Charlotte at home, Atlanta home in Orlando. They might go from the first seed to the fourth seed. So this this is this mm-hmm. is just amazing what's going to happen and uh, and because Boston is on a roll they're twenty two and three they were twenty five and twenty five on January twenty eighth they're twenty two and three since Boston is playing great they've won nine in a row or won six in a row they're nine and one Milwaukee is playing great too seventy sixers are having trouble but they're they're all now you have four teams that are literally tied for first place it's really going to be a fun shakeout here when we thought it wasn't going to be. In the West, though, Ira, you're not so confident that, well, we know nobody's catching up, but you're also not confident anyone can knock off this Phoenix Suns team. Before we get to the West, I did Uh, want to add... Brooklyn. I'm on the plane last night after all of the basketball. I'm watching Brooklyn play Charlotte, and... And this is Kyrie's first game, and you're thinking all that enthusiasm. I, her ticket prices were through the roof. They, the, it was the largest crowd that Barclays ever had, really? too. Which I, I must have added special seats, or I didn't know. And they're winning, the, and they're in the game, and they they take the lead, and they somehow uh, uh, Kevin Durant missed shot after shot at the end. Kyrie was terrible. He shot like I guess three for like 15, three for 16. He, he couldn't even shoot at all, and uh, they end up losing to Charlotte. It was a big upset, and now Brooklyn is in the ninth seed. And remember. Let's get this. In two weeks, it's going to happen. Ten plays nine, and seven plays eight. If seven, who the winner of seven eight is going to be the seventh position, and then the loser between the the loser the eighth seed, the one who loses that seven eight game, then plays the winner of the nine ten mm-hmm. game. So, but that Brooklyn could play Atlanta in one game. Who knows? I mean, right now, Trey Young goes into Brooklyn. Trey, they could win the game. He likes playing in New York. <laughs> you get Kyrie and Durant out, and that's crazy. Then we're going to move to the West right now. Yeah, speaking of the West, you think that it's near impossible for Phoenix to not make the Western Conference Finals. I think most people would agree with you. But going back to that play-in style now— there's a shot, Ira, that LeBron would not even have a chance with his Lakers to even get in. The Lake, the Phoenix Suns are 61 and 14. They are going to win like 67, 68 games. They've missed Chris Paul for most of the second half of the season. Booker has missed games. They've had Cam Johnson, who's their best six man, has been out. They continue to win. I don't know. They could put anybody on the. They could put the, the Nick players could put on Suns <laughs> uniforms and they would win. This is unbelievable. Memphis is nine back. John Morant might not even make the play. I mean, he's been hurt. His knee hurt, and he couldn't even play in that one game. I think it's a lot. More serious than letting on to believe. The Warriors are 13 games behind, and they Curry's out, quick. and they're they're having problems. Mavericks have Luka Doncic and really nothing else. The Jazz are having their injury problems. Gobert's been hurt. They've just not been playing as well as they did last year. The Nuggets are 17 games out behind them. Jokic is they're waiting for Michael Porter, uh, Jamal Murray to come back. They they don't seem to be ready to come back. And then you have like the other teams. And then the the fun thing is with the Lakers. So the Lakers, <laughs> they were up. I saw the score. They were up by like 20 something, and they somehow 
somehow lose to New Orleans. So right now the Lakers are at 31 and 43. They're in the 10th seed. Out yeah. of 15, the Spurs are 30 and 44. One game back. The Lakers have a tough schedule. The Spurs don't, and everyone else is tacking. But Popovich, what you've got to admit that Popovich would do anything to anything. beat the Lakers. Anything. This is probably his last year to knock mm-hmm. the Lakers out of that of that one position. And I just think this is the Lakers are this is serious now. LeBron's supposed his knees bothering him. Like this, could you imagine with LeBron playing leading the league in scoring with all they have and they don't make the playoffs? It would be not even a playing game with 10 of the 15 teams make it. You're in the bottom third of the league statistically. <laughs> Crazy. So Ira, we've been talking on this show, geez, for six months maybe about when is the world number one going to get taken away from John Rahm? And I don't think either of us thought that it was going to be Scotty Scheffler sliding up past some of these young studs like Morikawa uh, Morikawa and Hovland. We have a new world number one. When they announced it, I was shocked. So Scotty Scheffler has won. He has... uh He's won, he won Phoenix, but he won Bay Hill, another world golf championship. And I was complaining about the golf rankings because it seems like it took forever. Because it, But he jumped from five to one because the world golf ranking points were so great that they moved mm-hmm. up. And this is weird tournament because they had to play. They play like the, they want to do it during the NCAA. So it's a fine. You play. It's a match play against other golfers. You make to a sweet 16. They play round robin. Then you go sweet 16 and then go up. And there were some interesting matches in this. Uh, but but get back to Scheffler. Um, he was seventh in the Genesis, 55th in the players. He He's played well in the majors. He's only 25 years old for the University of Texas. He was 2020, he was fourth in the PGA, 19th in the Masters. In 2021, he was 18th in the Masters, 8th PGA, 7th US Open, and 8th British Open. But really, he has no, it's funny is that he's never won, he's number one in the world, but he's never won a major, which has happened. Rom was, you know, that situation mm-hmm. when he became it. But, uh, I just, it's shocking that Scheffler would move up that quick and he's now number one. But, you know, he beat uh, Kevin Kisner for the title four and three in the final. And he beat uh, Dustin Johnson three and one in the semifinal, who used to be number one. I mean, you look at DJ, he's eighth in the world. He was number one. And uh, and then uh, what's the other big thing? Brooks beat John Rahm in the round of 16, one up. And then everyone like, you know, I like Morikawa and I want to bet him to go to the, on the Masters. But Abraham Answer beat him seven and six. Shellacked. I mean, it's like, I think he, he didn't win a hole and, and it was like no. over. I mean, it's like, like Morikawa had <laughs> his plane. Like that match must have lasted like uh, an hour and he <laughs> lost there. So we'll see. Now they have one one match one you know in Texas this week and then they go to the Masters and hopefully I'll I'll be at the Masters for it. I mean, this is, it's so exciting to have the Masters come up and the rumor is that Tiger Woods, if you look at the charts, they have all these golfers like Phil Mickelson is clearly not playing. Past champions not playing. Right now, if you go on the thing, Tiger Woods has entered in this tournament. So unless he pulls out, which he has until this Friday to make a decision, he's going to be in this tournament. Rumor has it he's been walking a lot of golf courses lately. And like this is him getting prepped to go, seeing how much, you know, can he walk four days in a row? I'm not going to well, be surprised. Well, the idea is if he could play a card, I think he'd 100% at oh, the yeah. end. But the problem <laughs> is the walking is the, is the situation. Let's go over to tennis. I believe you're going to see a lot of this uh, coming up soon. But you're really excited about the Americans. Well, finally, we talk about the tennis. Miami Open is this week. And I've been talking about these young Americans. We're waiting. We're waiting. With, uh, uh, Tyler, Fr- we're waiting for all these Americans. We talked about TFO. And finally, there's a tournament where they're playing well in. And I think that's great. I mean, Jensen Brooks, he had a big upset today. He won. Um, there's uh, 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 Tommy Paul and Tyler Fritz just played t- just a few minutes ago, and Fritz ended up winning. He won Indian Wells and won this. TFO is still in this tournament, but I just, and Corda is still in. So you have a situation where the, there's no Djokovic, no Nadal, no Federer, of course, but Medvedev's number one seed is still there. Probably would make Titsipas in the semifinals. And uh, the upset was Kyrgyz beat Rublev. Uh, and uh, in the same draw that Kyrgyz and his TFO, if TFO, like, <laughs> this is 
going to be exciting. So Kyrgyz is the one who's crazy, throws his racket, yep. goes nuts. TFO is also, I mean, a match between those two is going to be fireworks. And then they would play in the semifinals. Kyrgyz would play Sasha Zarev, who is also known for throwing his mm -hmm. rackets. I mean, you're talking fireworks in that bottom half of the draw. So I really like from the men's perspective, these are some exciting matches in Miami. The women's perspective, American women have done terrible. Um, Coco Golf lost today to Swiatok, who's going to be number one in the world. So, But uh, there's only two Americans left in the tournament, Jessica Pagula and Danielle Collins. And Osaka has been, Naomi Osaka has looked great. She just won again today over Allison Risk, and she's in the quarterfinals. Let's talk a little uh, Formula One. Well, Formula One was in Saudi Arabia. They almost didn't have it because there was like explosions next to the track. But Matthew Verstappen ended up winning um, against Charles Leclerc. Remember last week, Leclerc won from Ferrari. So Ferrari has been do doing great this year. Ferrari is now, uh, they won. They were the second and third positions. And, and the Red Bull was the first and the fourth. And Mercedes is the third best team. George Russell was in fifth. And Hamilton, Lewis Hamilton is getting all the bad breaks. So he was about to, to he was going through and he's going to pit. There was an accident. But the two cars of an accident tried to go in the pit lane so they blocked it so we had to go around the track when he came back they said okay no you can't we're back to live racing so he just got, got getting some bad breaks but Verstappen was smart at the last four laps he waits to pass and then you use DRS and then uh, and he waited 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 and passed in the right position because what, what Leclerc was trying to do was let was slingshot and was letting Verstappen mm -hmm. pass him and then pass him back and he was smart Verstappen wins and it's so funny you hear the drivers talk he complains so much the whole race he's complaining about this he, I'm not a fan <laughs> and then after the race he's like hugging the clerk I love you he's so great you but did, I think Leclerc should listen to the radio he was complaining everything he's going across this line going across that line so but anyway that was uh, I, the Formula 1 now takes like a couple of weeks off but remember in a couple of weeks it's going to be down here in Miami I'm so pumped for it at the beginning of May let's wrap it up at NASCAR uh, Ross Chastain won the road course uh, the Circuit of Americas and what's interesting another Miami flair to this is that uh, he drives for Track Horse Racing, Track House Racing, when one of their owners of Track Horse Racing is Pitbull. Mr. From 305. Mr. 305. <laughs> and it's his first win in 121 starts, and he won because his good buddy, Al Almanjenger, he crashed at the end of the race. Like, he literally ran into him, and Pitbull was like, that's how you got to race, you know, those type of things. So, boy, the Miami Flair. But you got to imagine what Pitbull at the, is just, this is, you know, this is they're getting all these celebrities. Michael Jordan owns a car, Bubba Wallace. You're starting to see in NASCAR a lot of the celebrities owning these cars. It's very cool to watch. So, Ira, you've got a pretty busy week coming up, and there might be surprises in the future that you're pretty much set on. It's just going to be a tough. This is so. I'm going to go to the final four. I can't miss it. But I want to say something. There's, please go to my Iron Sports Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You're going to see great, fantastic pictures because the final four. You cannot. I've been to two. I was in 2015 in Indianapolis, and I got a great seat, and it was still terrible because you cannot watch in a basketball football arena, football stadium, a basketball court. Mm -hmm. They raise it up. It's impossible to see. It's just weird. And then I so it's just that I went also in Minneapolis, but I had great seats right on it. But literally, there's like a a couple thousand, maybe a couple, maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred really good seats. Everything else is a mile away, mm -hmm. and people are spending a fortune for these tickets. And I'm like, I'm not spending money for like, what's the level of a bad? <laughs> so I'm gonna get terrible, but I want to be in the arena when Coach K wins. Now Monday is easier because what happens is that half the teams lose, the two teams lose, and then it'll go down. So if Duke wins, then they play Kansas or Nova. It'll be a lot easier to go to the final game. But that'll be, and then. 
if I go to the Masters after that, that would be awesome to go to the Final Four and then the Masters uh, probably like Tuesday. I want to I want to go on Tuesday and Wednesday to get pictures because you, you're not allowed to bring your cell phone, anything on Thursday and Friday. You know how much I love my pictures. So, and that'd be awesome. A, the a the only thing missing is an opening day baseball game. You got, you'll tie, tie in a day game or something. No, no well, go to a when, night game on Thursday. I, I would be... If the Braves I, are at home. No, no, no. I got... I, I want to tell you something. If I'm at the Masters and I've never been there, if I'm Masters and Tiger's walking and I get a picture... I mean, I might like that. It just might be too much. Like, I might, it would be awesome. That picture of Tiger at the Masters. You're just going to have to follow at Iron Sports, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to find out if Ira gets that picture. We're excited for this. Justin Heyer, thank you so much for joining us from the Finsider and the Aqua and Orange Show podcast. We're out of time. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports.